Hello, and thank you for downloading the Trap One podcast. The obvious thematic Trap One style introduction for the show would be for me and all my panelists to sing several new freestyle verses of the Goblin Song. However, instant rhyming is a skill set that I am working on, and I am not quite ready to do that, even though we do have an accomplished poet with us in the recording today. Joining me on Zencaster are... Hi, I'm Denise, and I'm sometimes a poet, but I don't really know it. And I'm Mark. I'm giving you a few courtesy seconds to find words that rhyme with Mark. <laughs> He's just come back through his dogs in the park. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Mark, and the ending of this episode has me in the dark. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm no good at coming up with them either, obviously. <laughs> so this is the fourth Doctor Who episode to be simulcast essentially worldwide, streaming in the UK, but also streaming on Disney Plus at the same moment of the UK release. This was the same for the three RTD scripted David Tennant, Catherine Tate specials, which aired just about a month ago. And here we are. It is Christmas 2023, and it is our first Christmas special on Doctor Who in six years. There was a lot of advanced material released for The Church on Ruby Road. I opted not to watch any of it because I wanted to go into the episode with as few preconceptions and as little foreknowledge as possible. But I want to ask you guys, starting with Denise, did you listen to the Goblin song? Did you watch any of the trailers? How familiar were you with what Church on Ruby Road was going to be about before Church on Ruby Road aired? I did watch a trailer or two. I did watch the Goblin song. Um, it's not my favourite song in the whole world. <laughs> I mean, I'm still singing Spice Up Your Life, but no, I haven't really got my head around singing the Goblin song just yet. Um, it made it into the charts, which is something for a song about eating babies, but uh, <laughs> not really my genre. I also heard the Goblin song beforehand, um, and I did quite enjoy it. I thought there's some the, the lyrics are quite witty and everything, and uh, I have been humming it quite a bit. I've caught myself humming it um, while I was out walking the dogs and things like that. It's uh, It has stuck in my head quite a bit. And so I'd seen that, and the trailer over here has been shown on BBC One very, very heavily, probably in the two weeks or so leading up to the broadcast of the episode. Um, so yeah, I've been watching various things. There's been quite a good documentary about uh, Arthur Conan Doyle. I've been watching the last three weeks and things like that. So every time I record anything like that, uh, you know, it records like a couple of minutes before the program starts on the uh, on the digital box, and uh, it almost everything seems to have the trailer before or after it that I've recorded off the BBC. So that's been that's been absolutely ubiquitous, which is the trailer with uh, shooting out with dancing in the club and things like that, and then jumping on the ladder. So. Uh, it doesn't give too much away. Doctor Who doesn't go musical very often, but when it does, the original songs for the show are almost always earworms. Thinking back to the classic series and the Ballad of the Last Chance Saloon, or King John's song in the King Demons, or Gwendolyn's song in Ghostlight. As we're mm-hmm. sitting here, you know, about a day after, 
I do not recall the melody of the Goblin song, having only heard it the one time. I'm sure that if I watch the episode again, eventually that song will be an earworm, but it is not at that level in my head yet. Again, I intentionally did not watch it before the episode, so I've only heard it the one time. Moving on to my next question, what were your expectations going in? What were you expecting to see? So, for example, a lighthearted one-off Christmas special or a dark, gritty story that was going to serve as a launching point into Shudi Gatwa's first season? Well, from my point of view, the Christmas stories, they always belong in a kind of subcategory, don't they? Because, you know, you're watching them... And in a typical family setup, they're not given 100% of attention by the people who are watching it at the time. It's designed to be a little bit lighter. So, yeah, it was on the light side. It was in the tradition of the Doctor Who Christmas specials. And um, there were dark hints of other things, of course. I mean abandoned children or however good the outcome for them turns out to be it's not a happy subject but uh, yeah it was on the light side for me yeah I think I was expecting as as most of the Christmas specials have been and particularly the Russell T Davis ones it for it to be a really really broad family friendly uh, you know kind of entertaining episode there's there's people who only watch especially in the UK there's people who will only watch the Christmas special um, or I suppose people who are uh, you know visiting family or whatever who may be fans and they're trying to get the <laughs> the rest of the family to sit down and watch it. So I think they they make it as accessible as possible. Uh, and I'm guessing in the case of this one, having a musical number, you know that's that's quite a fun thing. You've got Davina McCall in there who is is pretty famous in the UK. She not I don't really like sort of reality TV, which is mainly what she's known for, I think. Particularly kind of she was also Big Brother for a long time in, in this country, which uh, which I didn't really like. But she's she's known for that kind of thing. And I hadn't realised till I watched Doctor Who Unleashed that she hosts an ITV show, so it's like the rival channel over here, called um I should have written this down, something like like Long Lost Families or something like that. Um so there is actually a TV show that she presents where they do reunite people who uh have been adopted or estranged or uh you know kind of I guess moved to Australia years ago and, and lost touch and that kind of thing. So that without naming it, I suppose, that is actually a TV show that she does. Whether she herself phones people to let them know that there hasn't been <laughs> been able to find somebody rather than a producer uh, is, is maybe stretches credulity a little bit. But I think all those things are bringing people in that maybe wouldn't normally watch Doctor Who. So Davina McCall being, uh, you know, kind of a household name who presents reality TV show. You've got Anita Dobson, who is really, really famous for, for EastEnders. Um, and, and Minnie Gibson herself, obviously best known for Coronation Street. So I, I suppose you, you're sort of bringing all those people over from from various other kind of TV genres who are fans of those. So I think I think it's a good one for that. And then dropping in these little things that are going to keep people watching, like who is the the mother who drops the um, drops the baby Ruby off in the church? Those kind of things. Then uh, I think are what are going to make people, uh, you know, ch- kind of tune in for the next series. So um, who is Mrs. Flood, that kind of thing. They're, they're the kind of things that, and we haven't really had that for a while with Doctor Who because we didn't really get it that much in the Chibnall era. 
Um, I feel like they didn't really sort of seed things as much that would pay off later in the series. And then for the last couple of years, we've just had one-off specials that hasn't been the scope for that. And there's been obviously the the changeover of of, of head writer. So, you know, we've got that a little bit in the 60th anniversary, I think, didn't we, with the one who waits uh, and that kind of thing. But now that the series is really getting going with the new Doctor, there are those things dropped in that are, that are going to bring people back, hopefully. This is where I am sort of cut short as an American fan who watches very little UK television. I do not know who Davina McCall is and the shows that she presents in the UK, there are American editions of those shows, but with different hosts. So she was somebody that I had to Google or Wikipedia in the middle of the episode in order to keep up. And I also, unless I've seen her in something else high profile that I've forgotten about, I didn't recognize that the person playing Mrs. Flood was somebody who was famous in the UK and has a a famous spouse as well. That I didn't learn until I was reading Twitter after the episode finished airing. So those are high-profile guest stars that were completely lost on me and possibly a large number of other American viewers as well. Well, certainly I haven't lived in the UK for over 20 years now, so uh, a lot of things just come in through osmosis rather than direct knowledge. But, of course, I knew who Anita Dobson was, and I'm know of Davina McCall, but her career didn't really kick off until I was leaving the UK. But uh, she seems like a nice lady. Yeah, I think with Anita Dobson, she's she's so famous for EastEnders in the 80s. Uh, and it was the point when there was only four TV channels in the UK as well. So the the audience was was probably massive. And I think he talks about on this episode of Unleashed that the, the Christmas Day episode of EastEnders where uh, she's... I can't remember which way around, but... but Den her divorces her. Yeah, yes. whichever way around it was, he, he divorces her. Um, and uh, I can't remember the actor's name, but he's in Resurrection yeah, of the Daleks. Yeah, Leslie Dalek, um, Grantham, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, yeah, he's in Resurrection of the Daleks, isn't he? <laughs> yes. Um, he's, uh, it's like, it's like the one of the highest rated, um, or the highest rated soap opera episode of all time or something in the UK. Yeah, and he comes back from the dead as well, doesn't he? And they use the clip <laughs> of um, Peggy, Barbara Windsor, <laughs> behind the uh, bar in the Queen Vic with a Cyberman ghost. That's right, in, in the Army of Ghosts, that's right, yeah. Yeah, so... Um, <laughs> Yeah, so they are legendary characters, even of people who've never really watched EastEnders know mm. who they are. Yeah, I've never watched it, but but knew she was from that. And I think probably my mum watched it at the time and that kind of thing. But it's uh, I think a lot of clips of that probably get shown on those kind of nostalgia shows and, and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, well. I think ITV3 is repeating the old EastEnders or something, isn't it? But, uh... Right. So while there were high-profile guest stars in Church on Ruby Road, there were also some high-profile new regular cast members to Doctor Who. Shooty Gatwa technically premiered in The Giggle a little less than a month ago, but this was his first proper solo episode, and we're led to believe that it's been quite some time since The Giggle took place in his subjective timeline. On a scale of one to Tom Baker's manic energy in part one of Robot, 
How impressive was Shudi Gatwa in his first proper story? He was pretty close, I would say. I mean, he's just got so much energy. And he's a new doctor, and he's not fallen immediately into any kind of crisis, so he goes bloody clubbing. (laughs) And respect to him, he puts on his best kilt and goes and... uh, dances like no one's watching and has the best time ever and i love that about him mm-hmm. yeah it's a different introduction for a new doctor isn't there there isn't any post regeneration um you know unconsciousness or memory loss or any of that stuff he's he's arriving and i think it is a sort of a soft reboot as well isn't it for for new viewers so it's it's akin to christopher eccleston's first uh first story and it, i think it does share some dna with rose as well doesn't it uh russell mm-hmm. james likes to uh likes to kick off a new series with a character from manchester <laughs> front and center um so yeah but i thought yeah he was uh mesmerizing really right right from the start right from his um right from his first appearance uh just just absolutely brilliant um i think it's one of those actors you can't take your eyes off when he's on the screen he's he's brilliant uh, and he's always used the time wisely to uh, to make his gloves that uh, he realized he's mm. always having to climb things and hang off things. So he's uh, he's going to make a little bit easier. of knitting on the side. Yeah. Yeah. And I like the fact they're not space age. They're not like spacesuit gloves or anything. It's that thing which I think, um, you know, like with the um, with the TARDIS key being a, a Yale key, isn't it? It's the sort of thing that kids can pretend that they've got a TARDIS key if, if they've just got a, a normal key for their house. And that's the sort of thing, you know. Kids have just got black woolly gloves. You can pretend to be Doctor Who, and that's that's your gloves for climbing up things and that kind of thing. So it's it's uh, it was a cool cool design choice. I well, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, you could actually make your own, couldn't you? But I'm sure they're going to be on sale very soon. <laughs> <laughs> this was a sort of clearing of the continuity slate because the first. 18 calendar years of the revived series had doctors surviving various traumas between the time war and the implications of the timeless children. Although there is lip service paid to timeless children, as the doctor notes that he is also an adoptee, this is a doctor who does not have the emotional baggage which 9 and 10 and 11 and war and 12 and 13 all had to bring to the role in various parts. By my calculation, this is the first time since season 17, or possibly since season 24 of the classic series, where we have a doctor who's just happy-go-lucky and is going through life with unbridled joy. Did you get that sense out of Shudi, and what sort of storytelling opportunities do you think that presents going forward? Well, like I say, it's a Christmas episode, so the tone is a little bit different. Um, He's obviously been through all of this trauma and so far he's dealing with it in a certain way or perhaps he's just not dealing with it right now. It will certainly come up in another time in the future. Um, So, yes, it's great to see happy-go-lucky, fun, cool, intelligent, interesting doctor who hasn't got the weight of the world on his shoulders but i don't think he's always going to be like that i i think he will be i think yeah i think the the idea that the 14th doctor 
has taken the time for kind of therapy and and, and you know rest and and kind of getting over those traumas. I think I think we'll see him like this for for the foreseeable future, where he's like kind of swashbuckling adventurer and. Uh, uh, and I made a note in this story, he's quite literally learning the ropes as the new doctor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I liked all that stuff, the, uh, because again, he's, uh, you know, he's, he's, the, the doctor's so old and experienced now that there is this, this idea that, oh, this is something new, this, this, uh, this more, more magical, but not, he says it's not magic, but it's a different type of science with the coincidences and the ropes and that kind of thing. Uh, I found that stuff really, really interesting. And I think on on Cherry's bedside table, I haven't mentioned Cherry yet, but on her bedside table, she's got a copy of Jonathan Strange and Dr. Norell, and that felt like oh. a clue to the direction. That's one of my favorite books, and that's about... Uh, it's kind of an alternative history of, of Britain, but where there is magic and fairies and the fairy realm and that kind of thing. It's absolutely brilliant. There was... Um, uh, Stephen Harness, who's Doctor Who writer, adapted it for the BBC, and that's uh, that's a pretty good version of it as well. Uh, it is out. superb. If uh, if anybody hasn't seen that, that is well worth your time. Good book, good TV show, and uh, Susanna Clarke's novel Piranesi is also brilliant. But I regret yes. it's probably unfilmable. <laughs> Yeah, it is. Yeah, I read that a couple of years ago. It's, it's a fantastic book as well. Um, yeah, but that that's, it works around, uh, a lot of that is about the, the rules of magic, isn't it? And mm. and, and and how, you know, the, the two kind of English magicians who are trying to resurrect English magic have to learn those rules, but then they're bound by them and, and can be trapped by them and things like that as well. So, Or they deny a part of the rules, but they end up having to use them anyway, and there's always horrible consequences. <laughs> Yeah, so that that really felt like a clue as to the direction, particularly of this episode, but but maybe going forward as well. That it, it seemed very obvious because it was quite prominent in two or three shots that that book was there. That 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 it's maybe an influence on this new version of Doctor Who. Anyway, well, no complaints from me if that is the case. Because <laughs> that and ticks maybe, a lot of my boxes. Yeah, and get Susanna Clark in to write one. Yeah. <laughs> oh wow. So, Mark, you mentioned the science stuff with Shudi Gatwa. Do you see any parallels there with the John Pertwee Doctor, who not only was famous for inventing gadgets on the fly, but similar to Shudi's Doctor, also made a reference to having met Harry Houdini? Yeah, well, Shudi Gatwa himself on, on social media, hasn't he? And in interviews, he's talked about um, a certain affinity with, with John Pertwee in terms of really liking his his costume style and his dress sense. Um, and and Pertwee had that thing as well, which I think we can get from Shooter Gat, where he, well, it kind of didn't really come into the 80s anyway, but he's a doctor with a style of dressing rather than a fixed costume, which, you know, what, what we get from sort of season 18 onwards. So I like that. It seems like he's going to have like a very cool dress sense but not not a fixed costume. But yeah, the yeah the invention type stuff uh, is really good. And yeah, I suppose like you think of stories like the demons. It's it's a different type of science, isn't it? Which is mistaken for magic and occultism and, and that type of thing. What kind of an impression did Millie Gibson make on you in her first appearance on the show? 
Well, she's very sweet and she's very nice and she's fun, but obviously there is this big mystery in her past which makes her more than the generic companion because we don't know. They weren't able to find any trace of her mother and father. So that's a big old mystery right there. There's got to be something a little bit odd in her past, but she's very bright, very normal, kind of a 19-year-old girl with friends and, again, parallels with Rose, like you might say. And, um, yeah, I liked her very much. She is a perfect companion, I would say, and uh, she wears a bit of tartan as well from time to time. Yeah, I think you're right, the parallels with Rose, because she talks about she's recently lost a job as well, which which Rose had, um, well, because of the doctor in, in Rose, obviously, but this is part Not of... Not really the doctor. It's a bit unfair to blame the doctor, isn't it? <laughs> he blew up her workplace. <laughs> he blew, he yeah, because autons. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it says as, as part of Ruby's run of bad luck, she's she's lost her job, hasn't she? So she's got, uh, she you know, she's got that thing where I suppose she's looking for her next... Uh, her next adventure and things the the being part of a band is um it reminds me of the russell t davis's target novelization of rose um because there's it's, it's mickey's band in that i think but i think in that there's um there's a trans person as a lead singer as well so it feels like um you know he's kind of maybe using that idea there who also is mentioned in redacted yes yes that's true i'd forgot about that yeah uh, yeah, because the uh, yeah the main character in that uh, grew up on the Powell estate, didn't they? Mm. Yeah, but yeah, as you say, she's she's absolutely adorable, and we've got that thing which which again you know harks back to the first Russell T Davis era of the Doctor's companions being those very exceptional people that are very quick witted, very intelligent and emotionally intelligent and and able to improvise you know she she steps in on the goblin ship and he's able to to come with some rhymes in the song to keep that going to keep the goblin king distracted while the doctor's doing the thing with the rope and the doctor lets her figure out he doesn't invite her he goes back to the TARDIS but he hasn't taken off yet and he's giving her time to figure out the clues that he's a time traveler that you know, as, as she, you know, then brilliantly does. She goes, oh, yeah, he said, hang on, when was Harry Tudini alive? And he said about he went back and saved me. So that whole thing of, you know, if she hadn't figured that out, I guess the doctor would have just taken up, taken off. But she sort of, you know, passed that that test or whatever and, uh, and did, and, and uh, yeah, found the TARDIS with a little bit of help from Mrs. Flood, did the the traditional, which I love, going into the TARDIS, coming back out of it, walking around the outside of it. Uh, I was really <laughs> pleased they didn't show show the interior in its entirety until Ruby got to see it. I think that's a really cool thing for a new companion and for any new audience that's joining at this point is, is to see that. The overhead shot of the police box prop as Millie is walking around it is a shot that we have not seen in Doctor Who before. What did you think of Mark Tondurai's direction on this one? I thought it was very good. Yeah, I know he's, he's directed a few episodes in the past, hasn't he? He did Rosa and things like that. I I thought, yeah, because it's, it's quite small in scale in a way, isn't it? But I think you get the real sense of the geography of the flat 
um, which which kind of comes becomes important as the doctor kind of goes from one end to the other, and there's the changes to the timeline, um, and you, and you get that sense of it changing, and it's not decorated the same, and it's it's a bit sort of darker and things. Uh, so no, I thought it was uh, it was really nicely directed, and uh, and the the goblin ship when it was you know it's like like a Jim Henson thing or something, wasn't it? When the uh, when they're swinging from the uh, swinging from the beams and and they're everywhere, it was. Uh, yeah, I think it had great, great pace and energy as well. Yes, it's one of those um, directorial styles where you don't really notice it. I mean, sometimes you notice directorial flourishes and things, and sometimes that detracts a bit from the pacing of the story, or you just think, oh, look, another reflected shot or something. But no, he is completely does the job in the correct style for the show that he's working on. So uh... We also had a couple of potentially recurring guest characters. I know during RTD's first run on the show, companions would have an extended family or a found family, and the show would come back to them from time to time. Knowing nothing about what's coming up over the rest of the season, I don't know if we're going to be seeing Carla or Cherry again. How did we like Ruby's adoptive mother and grandmother? They were gorgeous, weren't they? They were so nice. I mean... um... Cherry Sunday in her bed, of course. It inevitably reminded me of my own mum towards the end of her life. But, uh, yeah, particularly, you know, like, where's my bloody cup of tea? Because <laughs> that was very much, <laughs> that was very much in my mum's style, you know, or banging on the wall saying, tea, tea, tea. That was one of her things as well. <laughs> but, you know, when she wanted a cup of tea, she did get one eventually. So, uh yeah, I loved that, and I loved the sort of 1970s mug that she eventually got her cup of tea in, which I was wondering if it's always been her mug, you know. It's a 50-year-old mug right there, and, uh, of course, um, Ruby's adopted mum. What a lovely lady. What a fantastic lady, having looked after all of those children for however long or short a period. Brilliant people. Would love to see more of them. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, I think they were both brilliant. I'd be very surprised if we didn't see them. Uh, I think it is, like you say, very much in Russell T. Davis's style to have uh, a set of characters on Earth for when they revisit. And I know we've we've got the new unit team, which will which we're almost certainly going to see again. But yeah, for that personal side of things as well for Ruby, and we we're definitely going to see Mrs. Flood who lives next door. So it'd be very odd to see. Uh, for them to go back and not see Carla and Cherry and see Mrs. Mm-hmm. Flood. Mrs. Flood um, in her deck chair with her hip flask, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> now, do we know that Mrs. Flood is going to be a recurring character? Because fan theories are already legion online as to whether or not she was <laughs> the hand that we saw at the end of the giggle or whether or not she is one of three female returning characters who are always rumored to come back in the new series but have not come back yet. So do we know for a fact <laughs> that Anita Dobson is going to be a semi-regular on the show, or do you think this was a just one-off gag, kind of like the Welsh character in Delta and the Bannerman who knows what Time Lords are but was never heard from before or since? Well, I think, um, I hope we will be seeing her again. I do not think she was the person who picked up the gold tooth at the end of the giggle because that was a young person's hand and 
you know, I mean, Anita Dobson, she's even older than me. So, you know, her hand would not look like that unless she was traveling in time, which might be possible because she knows what a TARDIS is. And Mark and I have, of course, discussed for some time if a certain renegade Time Lord were to come back, who would be playing them. But uh, I hadn't put her on my radar. No, I think I think on, on Unleashed, she she heavily suggests that she'll be coming back because she talks about playing the part and in this and talk and, and, and in this episode playing the part as a nosy neighbour being relatively easy. Uh, or a friendly neighbour or something like that being relatively easy compared to where the character goes. So that's uh, she, she basically is is confirming that she'll be back. Very interesting that she doesn't recognise the TARDIS. She just recognises it once she sees it dematerialise and materialise as a TARDIS. When it's parked up earlier on, she's complaining about it being there. She just recognises a police box and she's, she thinks the neighbours put it there. It's not until she hears the wheezing, groaning sound and sees it disappear that she goes, that's a TARDIS. So maybe it's not somebody that knows the Doctor, like the Rani or River Song or Susan, mm. but somebody who is familiar with... Might have run into Clara and me or... Uh... Ah, that's true, yeah. I think that would probably be a bit continuity heavy for the, for the, for the mm. new, new series. But yeah, it's interesting that yeah, it's interesting. I thought that she doesn't recognise the TARDIS or doesn't seem to, but knows a TARDIS. Mm. Once she's seen it come and go a couple of times, she gets the yeah, idea. Yeah, because her dialogue is, "Have you never seen a TARDIS before?" She mm. doesn't say, "Have you never seen the TARDIS before?" Which a lot of the new series, it's always just the TARDIS, isn't it? Because there's so few other Time Lords around. So that so she's I think is um, either a, a new Time Lord character or is familiar with another Time Lord character. Because uh, I know some of the speculation is just because we know that there's an episode coming up where the Doctor and Ruby travel back to the 1960s and have an adventure with the Beatles, and they're uh, saying, "Well, it could just be somebody that they meet then." But I don't know. I'm I'm thinking not because otherwise she would have recognised the. Yeah, she would have done. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The principal antagonist in this episode were the goblins. Now, we don't learn anything about them. The way that we would learn the origin and backstory of monsters in classic series or earlier new series adventures. So we don't learn where the goblins come from. Are they from Earth? Are they from outer space? But we do see their piratey ship and we hear their music and we see their goblin king were these meant to be scary monsters or were these just plain old adorable little huggable monsters hmm <laughs> that's a good question um i wouldn't want to find one under my christmas tree and um, for me the goblin king is always david bowie in labyrinth so Sorry, chubby bloke, but you ain't it. But uh, I, I thought when we watched um, Unleashed, I thought the um, when they actually met some of the actors playing the goblins, that they came across as cuter than they were on on mass. But uh, yeah, they were pretty nasty-looking creatures who would give you a nasty nip given half a chance. 
And I'm an unlucky, clumsy person anyway. I really do not need them in my life. <laughs> uh, again, it's it's a nice little thing for kids, I suppose, isn't it? If they drop something or knock something over to say, oh, you know, that means that there's there's uh, there's goblin uh, kind of monsters around and things. Yeah, I, I think it's partly it's a, it's a function of it being the type of episode it is where there's a lot of new introductions to do that while they're not an established Doctor Who monster, they're familiar from folklore and Harry Potter and things like that, aren't they? The idea that um, that, that goblins are just kind of nasty creatures. I, I wouldn't be surprised if an explanation comes further down the line that it's something to do with uh, who who the Meep calls the boss, who potentially is the same person that the toy maker calls the one who waits, or he who waits. Uh, that it's something to do with them, the way they, the way that the whole ship just disappeared and vanished at the end, um, after being skewered on the the church spire. Patrick Trout Troutend from the Ormond. <laughs> 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 yeah, there was something odd. I thought about the way it disappeared, piece by piece, sort of you know, sort of phasing out like that. Mm. Yeah, going back into another dimension rather than. Um catching fire or vaporizing or something yeah so yeah i think i think an explanation it might be tied up later on when when we meet the big bad they might say that you know we sent the goblins to try and get rid of ruby sunday knowing that in the future she'd be a companion of the doctor interesting Anything else that you guys want to bring up about Church on Ruby Road that we have not discussed? Any possible continuity threads for the future? Any fun little grace notes that we'd like to watch over and over again for a one-off on holiday special? I would like to know more about the woman who left Ruby at the church because uh, she seems to be quite a tall, slim lady, um, whereas Ruby's a little bit smaller and chunkier, so she might not even be her mum. Um, could she be Mrs. Flood in another guise? Could, you know, I thought that is a big mystery that I'd like to know something more about. And obviously in that scene, the doctor was thinking about following her, but then decided not to. So I don't know if he just thought, is that a mystery for another time? Or I'll figure that out later. I want to get back and make sure this has worked or it's, um, so that was interesting. Yeah, it was interesting that, wasn't it? How he didn't he didn't run over because this doctor's so um, empathetic and wants to help people that you know, knowing that somebody must be in in a pretty desperate state to to leave their baby outside of a church like that, that he didn't maybe run over to say, you know, what's what's wrong, you know, can I help? That kind of thing. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was an odd moment the way he just watched that. But then I suppose he's got to keep the um, got to keep the timelines. Then hasn't he? If he uh, well, <laughs> if, if he he, says, he wouldn't uh, he wouldn't have persuaded her to take the baby back, you know. But maybe he yeah. was worried that it would just take one word at this moment in time, and she would change her mind. Mm. So that's, that's possible. Yeah. I've taught myself out of that there by thinking it through. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and we haven't talked about the new Sonic yet. 
I liked it. It reminded me of the Nokias that I had in the early 20th, <laughs> early 21st century. So, uh, yeah, I liked the sort of um, coloured plastic and silver and stuff. I thought they it looked quite retro and you can't sort of do anybody a damage with it because it's nicely rounded and stuff. I, I liked it. Haven't seen much of what it can do yet, though. It's sort of cool, isn't it? It's more ergonomic, um, maybe less screwdriver for that sort of, you know, that sort of thing that the habit of some of the doctors have got into of pointing it at people. Uh, mm. Almost like it's a weapon. I suppose it's less, less kind of offensive looking like that. That it does look more like a like a tool, like a phone or a, you know, uh, what are those things on Star Trek called that they scan things with? It's maybe more along those uh, those sort of lines. A tricorder. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah. that. It's, it looks more like uh, more like a yeah, maybe a sort of scanning sort of tool. The the Mavity running joke is still mm. with us. Um, is that? I mean, I'd love they've just <laughs> that just ran forever, <laughs> and is never ever corrected or resolved. I think that would be brilliant. Uh, but yeah, there's a very brief moment when they're hanging off the ladder where the Doctor says Mavity again. Mm. So. Yeah, I uh, I really really like that. Uh, I'm still on the fence about that. I'm still not sure whether I like that or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it, in a way it doesn't make sense because I think the the story about Isaac Newton and the apple is apocryphal, and um, I think uh, I think it was on the second great and bountiful human empire podcast uh, where they said that. Um, Newton didn't actually come up with the word gravity either. So, <laughs> yeah, I had a feeling that etymologically speaking, that it was probably a word that had existed for some time because, like, you know, people talked about gravity as weight, as in, like uh, mm. Donna said, the gravity of the situation. You know, it's. Yeah. Uh, I, I didn't think it was a whole new word that he just plucked out of the air. Yeah, but I think it's one of those things. You know, he can only fools and horses, and every time Trigger sees Rodney, he calls him Dave, and you just sort of have a little chuckle every time it happens. I think he just carries on forever like that, and every time mm. they, um, they need to refer to it, they call it Mavity. That will always just put a smile on my face. This, of course, is the first chapter of what is likely going to be a 30-chapter book, assuming that Shudi is around long enough to get to 30 episodes. So there is a lot that is going to happen over the 15th Doctor's era that is completely unknown to us, recording in December 2023. And isn't that a wonderful feeling? Oh, it is a wonderful feeling indeed. How excited are you guys for the coming season? Well, I love I love what I've seen of Shooty Gatwell so far. More please, I think it looks like... There's going to be some pretty amazing stories. It's great to have Russell T. Davis back at the helm. It's going to make me happy. Yeah, I'm, I'm very, very excited. On, on the strength of the two lead performances in this episode, there, you know, I, I'd come back for them alone, let alone the little story seeds that have now been planted that, uh, that you know, like you say, I really want to know who Ruby's mum is. I want to know who Mrs. Flood is. Uh, it's even the name. It's uh, it's it's an odd name, isn't it? It's got the sort of water associations like like pond and river oh, song. Oh, I like that river but song melody yeah. pond. Yeah, I can't remember who said as well that um, you know, like Rani is an anagram of rain and that kind of thing. So it it almost feel like it's you couldn't have chosen a a name where there's there's all these sort of connotations and things as well. So 
very very interesting to uh to, to find out who she is and she talks to the camera as well which which you don't get a lot of in doctor who and it always uh it's always quite cool no tom baker when he's left in a scene without his companion will break the fourth wall but uh <laughs> yeah. yeah it doesn't happen Peter a, lot of, a couple of times did it as well mm. it feels like it gives the character power doesn't it that if something you've only seen the doctor do then giving that ability to break the fourth wall to another character almost gives them quite a lot of weight. And, and, yes, uh, and absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it was very common in the Hartnell years where characters would address the cliffhanger directly into camera. Linda Barron, my goddess, did it in Enlightenment Part 3. John Normington did it as a conscious style choice, the same way that back in the old Globe Theatre, a soliloquy was delivered directly to the audience. So this is an old-standing dramatic technique. Uh, John Sim did it in, I think, um, his very first appearance as the master. So something that Doctor Who comes back to time and again, not every year, but it's always fun to see. It always brings a certain energy to the show. It brings the viewer in, and I think new viewers in particular might appreciate that. Mm. The younger viewers, you know, they're used to... TV presenters on TV on children's shows addressing you directly, bringing you in, and on YouTube as well. Which you know, as I understand it, kids only watch YouTube, so they're, they're going to get a lot on there as well, presumably. Yeah, I said this on the giggle as well, but I love the Fifteenth Doctor's theme. It's so high energy and and adventurous and cool. I love it, mm, and I love the way the TARDIS is surfing through the vortex. Mm. And joining us now for the second half of our Trap One look back at the Church on Ruby Road, the 2023 Christmas special, are two <clears throat> Doctor Who fans who are immune to the charms of David Tennant and are very excited for the new Doctor, played by Shruti Gatwa. Callie, Callie, I'm going to start with you. You were not a big fan of the David Tennant Doctor. Can you tell us why? Uh... I just very, very uh, rude. I think he had a pretty big disregard for Donna and ignored him caring about her. Or her, her caring about him. You watched two of the David Tennant specials with me. You watched Wild Blue Yonder over my shoulder, and then you watched The Giggle with me. And I think your point was that in both episodes, he managed to lose her. Yeah, also that. <laughs> and Jan, what was your take? You you were around for much more of the David Tennant era than Callie was because David Tennant's first run on the show predates Callie even being born. <laughs> um, what was your take on David Tennant? Were you happy to have him back? Um, not really. I mean, I, I literally have lost friends over this. Um, back in the day, back in the Dark Ages before Callie was born – um, I like David Tennant. When he was the doctor, I enjoyed him. But when he left, I felt like he had kind of reached his the end of his time there. It was obvious to me that he was kind of running on fumes, not to repeat RTD's stuff later on, but it just felt like he, he was ready to go. And he was kind of dialing in the performance, and I felt like he needed to move on. And when he left, I was fine with that. I mean, I'm a Doctor Who fan. I've been a Doctor Who fan since 1978. So I'm used to doctors leaving. And even if I don't necessarily like the next doctor, and there's no doctor that I I hate. Let's, you know, and all my years of being a fan, 
I, but you know, everybody has their favorites and everybody has the eras that they prefer to others. Um, and when he left and literally from the moment Matt Smith stepped in that TARDIS, I was captivated. And to me, season five through season seven or seven A are probably the, my favorite period of Doctor Who. And I really love Matt. And part of the problem was that as soon as David announced he was leaving, his fans who are the worst started <laughs> acting, I, I, you know, I just, I'm a fan of many things and there are certain people whose fans are just like obsessive and narrow focused and like cannot let go and mean. And his fans freaked out. They were acting like Stephen Moffat went to David Tennant's house and forced him off that stage at gunpoint. Um, it, it was just bizarre. I mean, there were people, I mean, a friend of mine started like the first Matt Smith social media anything on live journal at the time. It was the Dr. 11 community. And um, we were very good about policing and, and trying to make it very inclusive, et cetera. And there were people who were literally like freaking out, claiming that they had torn down all their posters and they cried so hard they made themselves sick. And it was just not a healthy situation. And the problem was that over the, you know, intervening years, all we've heard is, you know, David is the doctor. David is the doctor. He's the only one that matters. Dave and, you know, David, Ten and Rose are the ultimate. And why can't they be there forever? Yada, yada. And like I said, Doctor Who is about change. Doctor Who is always about getting to a point and then changing everything. You know, showrunner, companions, doctor, TARDIS interior clothing, whatever. And we're going on. And I liked it. I mean, I just, I feel like I keep having to qualify. I like David Tennant as an actor. I really like David Tennant as a human being. I think he's great. I love his kids. I love his wife. I love his father-in-law. You know, I, I just, I think he's a really cool guy and I like the stuff that he does. I was a fan of his before Doctor Who because he'd been in a, a costume drama called uh, He Knew He Was Right, where he played this sort of like conniving vicar who is uh, basically two-timing two sisters, one of whom was Fenella Wolgar, who's a very good friend of his. And he was funny as all get out. And my mom and I, it was one of those people like my mom and I just noticed and said, wait, this guy is going to go somewhere. This was before Doctor Who. This was before anybody had seen Casanova, et cetera. So I've always liked him and I still like him as an actor. But as soon as I heard he was coming back, I just lost my mind because it was like people were acting like this was the second coming of everything. And that suddenly, I mean, you know, all over social media, they're including friends of mine. Oh, I haven't watched Doctor Who since 2009. He left. It hasn't been Doctor Who. Finally, we're getting the doctor back. You know, now we've got real Doctor Who and I'm air quoting here. Um, you know, maybe we'll get Rose, blah, blah, blah. And it was just like, can you stop? Because it was erasing basically 15 years of Doctor Who history, some of which was my favorite. I mean, I love Matt Smith. I love Peter Capaldi. I like Jodie Whittaker in spite of whatever issues. There might have been the Chibnall era, and that's a whole nother topic of discussion. So I was not happy. And the more time went on, the less happy I got because the worse and the louder this sort of fan obsession started. And I have friends who stopped talking to me because I started pushing back and being really obnoxious about it. And half of it was tongue-in-cheek. I just felt like if people were, you know, getting on these soapboxes and, you know, talking in hyperboles and going on and on about how, you know, God was descending, Messiah was coming back to the show, I was going to be as ob equally as obnoxious and push back. And unfortunately, certain friends of mine didn't either didn't get the joke or didn't appreciate the joke. And they stopped talking to me because they decided I hated him, this, that, and the other thing. Um, and I kept hoping that I would be proven wrong. And the show, I mean, the specials were okay. 
I didn't hate them, but I didn't love them. And I actually was spoiled for the bi generation well before the, it happened. And, um, because it leaked, a like a month or two ago, at least. And then at cer a certain point, there was actually a change to it where people said that the bi generation was actually going to be similar to uh, Mel coming onto the show where somehow Shudi was, even though he was, he was the next generation, he was regeneration. He was being pulled back from the future and that would sort of connect it. And I like that better because otherwise what the problem was that it's set up that you've got the doctor who everybody thinks is the only doctor to begin with suddenly having a clone or, you know, a sexual reproduction, whatever you want to call it. And there were people who were treating Shudi as basically already with even not seeing him as an inferior copy clone, whatever, because the real doctor is still out there. And, you know, you go into doctor who the social media now and everybody's clamoring about when is, when are we getting, you know, the, the adventures of 14 and, and Donna, when are, when is the real doctor coming back? You know, this, that, and the other thing. So I was not happy about it. And, like I said, the specials were okay. They were, I'm disappointed for a number of reasons. A lot of them having to do with Russell's writing. Um, and I don't blame David. I mean, he loves the doctor. He loves, you know, being the doctor, obviously. And that's the other thing. Um, my complaint was that how do you miss somebody if they never leave? And when he wasn't on screen, he was in, uh, big finish audios. They had him in video games. He was, you know, they had to use him to prop up 13 in the, comics that are out there i mean it was just everywhere you went they still had to like shove 10 in there somehow and i i get it from a business point of view he sells he makes the money so of course they're going to use it but he's everywhere so i feel like he never left and it feels like it it kind of overshadowed everybody and then you've got the first black the first queer the first queer black doctor coming actor playing the doctor coming in and it, suddenly he can't even be in the spotlight by himself he's got a like be this byproduct of the perfect doctor and it just you know russell and i've had this fight too russell i don't believe russell is racist i think russell is a fairly progressive fairly liberal-minded person but he's still a 60 year old cis white man um you know a certain time and place and i think that sometimes he does not think because it's not in his purview he does not you know he doesn't know that how things are perceived by people that are not in his own demographic. And that kind of bothers me. And I do know that, you know, I have friends um, of color. We're not, we're not thrilled about the generation because the by generation, because of that, for just the reasons that I was angry about. When I first heard about it, I kind of lost my mind and posted something really nasty on my, F my Facebook. And I was said, I was so angry that I almost wanted to like blurt everything out because it just pissed me off so much. And two friends stopped talking to me over that because they decided that I was, you know, going to, you know, spoil people just for, because I was vindictive and because I hated this person. And, you know, why couldn't I get a life or something like that? And it wasn't that it was much more the perception of what was going to happen. And I couldn't believe Russell was being that stupid again. Um, so there, I, I, I know that's a long and involved answer, but yeah, I wasn't real happy. <laughs> so Callie, you only know David Tennant from two things. I showed you blink a few years ago. You liked blink, didn't you? It scared me, but yeah, I liked it. And then you also would have watched Tree Food Tom when you were younger. David Tennant did one of the voices on Tree Food Tom for the first couple of seasons. Although at the time, you wouldn't have been aware that the Scottish guy was played by Doctor Who. Yeah. Um, so David Tennant is now off the show, and Shruti Gatwa is 
the spotlight, the only doctor who appears in church on Ruby Road, which Callie watched with me. Callie will have seen Shooty Gatwa in Barbie as he played one of the Kens. Mm-hmm. Do you remember him from the Barbie movie, Callie? Uh, I remember him being there, but I don't remember too much about his character. I believe it was a very small part. And then Jan yeah. would have seen Shooty Gawa in his Netflix series, which I'm not going to discuss with Callie in the room. But <laughs> no, don't. Bo- both of you have some familiarity with him going into the episode. Look, I, I saw him in the Barbie movie too, so we can talk about that. So. Uh, I have not seen that. I'm ready to do an Oppenheimer podcast, but I can't do the full Barbenheimer. <laughs> if you need somebody for the Barbie end of it, I'm here. I, I'm your girl. <laughs> I'm the Barbie episode. But yeah, I, just to... to to, you know, add what, to what Callie was saying about him. Shooty was basically one of the, there were five main cans with the main one being Ryan Gosling and the other one being Simu uh, Liu. But then there was uh, Kingsley Benadare and Scott Evans and Shooty who were sort of like the supporting guys in the background. So they didn't have a lot of lines. Um, they more were just sort of, I don't want to say henchmen. That's not the right quite the right word, but they were kind of like the backup guys of like, if there was a gang, let's say, you know, whereas Shooty and, and uh, sorry, uh, Simu and Ryan would have been like Riff and Bernardo. These, they were the other guys in the gang. So they kind of were like the supporting characters. So Shooty had a couple good lines. He sang, he danced, he backed them up, but he wasn't like, he wasn't the lead. He was just sort of a supporting actor in the group. If that makes I- any sense at all. Callie did see the Steven Spielberg West Side Story with me in the theater, so she'll understand that reference to Riff and Bernardo, I'm sure. Callie, what's your favorite song in West Side Story? Uh, I did did like When You're a Jet. I like the the rhythm of that. And also the Tonight Quintet, when everybody on screen is singing that one song at the same time, you shout out. What did you shout out in the theater? Uh, I was like the music man, I think. Hmm? You also I think shout I thought out. it was really like the music man. And you shouted out. This is spectacular. You shouted out to the entire theater. <laughs> yeah, that's sounds about right. All right, so Callie, we'll start with you first. What did you think of Shooty Gatwa as Doctor Who, given that you weren't crazy about David Tennant? What did you think about the new guy? I liked him better. I think he was a little bit less rude to his companion, although he did lose her. But then he went back in time and then saved her. She, he went back in time to, like, get her back. And, I mean, he does seem to care a lot about her, which I think is good. I mean, the fir- their first interaction was a little bit strange, but I think it wasn't supposed... I don't think he was trying to be strange. Well, I think he was trying to warn her. You would have seen him dancing crazily on the dance floor when um, Ruby was on stage, I think, playing the keyboard. And then he shows up later on. As the snowman is falling in the street, he rescues the woman who's carrying the, pushing the stroller. He also but it turns rescues out, uh, the glass from the table. Oh, right, right. Right, which she, she then later drops. But <laughs> Yeah, but you know. Yeah, exactly. Callie, what did you think of his costume? Because every doctor is characterized by what they wear. What did you think of Shooty Gatwa's costume as the doctor? I think I think he should keep wearing the skirt because he's the only doctor that I've seen that I could picture in a skirt. 
a lot of just, the other just, actors didn't have the physique for that for the kilt. Okay. Just, just for yeah, was just, just for clarification, it's actually a kilt because he is a Scotsman, so not not just a skirt. <laughs> but yeah, very few doctor actors could carry off the kilt, but Shudi Gatwa certainly has the the physique for it. And Callie, you're a big fan of Harry Houdini, whose uh, grave is not too far from us here in Brooklyn. What did you did you like the little reference to the doctor and Harry Houdini? Yeah. Jan, you certainly on Facebook were a big fan of that as well, I think. Yeah, um, especially when the people started – one of my friends actually got very upset about it because she didn't like the use of the word hot. She would have liked to just had the word summer. Um, she's starting to – I mean, I love this woman to death, but she's starting to show a side that I'm not too thrilled about. Um, but then I pulled up the – you know, somebody on Twitter had actually found the Jody uh, – Jody Whitaker's character had said she spent a long, wet weekend with Houdini at some point. And I don't remember the, which episode that was in. And then because we were talking about it, Jason, you mentioned that you pulled up the whole thing about uh, John Pertwee and John Pertwee's doctor having spent time with Harry Houdini. So as I said, and I hope this is not too, you know, this is not too racy, but I think the doctor, it sounds to me like Harry Houdini was a regular hookup for the doctor of, you know, many incarnations. <laughs> Callie would not know this, but in the third Doctor's final story in 1974, he escapes from a spider web and credits Harry Houdini with having learned escapology. Callie, I bought you the Who Was book for Harry Houdini on the same day that I bought you the Who Was book for Rosa Parks because you watched the Jodie Whittaker Rosa Parks episode with me live. When I bought you the Houdini book, you started reading the book on the subway and you got very angry because there was a problem with the cover art. Do you remember that? Uh, no. So the cover art had Harry Houdini's eyes as one color, but in the book it said that he was blue-eyed, and on the cover of the book he was not. That sounds like something I would complain about. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like something I would complain about, so, you know. We we have to have canon accuracy here. And this is, these are the, the Who Was books are biographies. We're supposed to go to the Who Was books for absolute pure historical accuracy, and this was one bit where the cover artist didn't get the memo. Um, so Callie, based on what you saw of Shruti Gatwa as the doctor, are you interested in watching more of him as the main character of the show? I would say so. David Tennant's doctor was a tortured, tormented character. And one of the things you pointed out when you were talking about the giggle with me is that Donna is telling him that he needs to change. He needs to lighten up. And what is his reaction to her telling him, telling him that he needs to change and that, to try to have uh, a serious he conversation. Complete, he completely changes the subject and then runs away. And then loses her. Yep. Do you see that with Shruti Gatwa's doctor? Do you see a doctor who's tortured and tormented? Oh, woe betide me. Life is so hard. Or do you see a doctor uh, who really loves being alive? No, he seems to be just... I mean, he seems to be happy to be there. He seems to be enjoying what he's doing. I mean, he there's a whole musical number... In the that definitely strikes me as a little bit more lighthearted. Also, he's a lot less twitchy, a lot less. We need to do all of this right now. No waiting whatsoever. We have to. And this girl that he just met at like a club or a bar or something. He met one night just over some goblins. He goes all the way back in time to save her from. He goes all the way back in time to save her from them, having had known her barely two hours. 
So it strikes me as very different than David Tennant. And one other point that I'll bring up in terms of Shooty Gatwise, you're right, the musical number was very, very funny. But there was also the moment when he rescues the woman in the pram from the falling snowman. Yeah. And he realizes, what are you doing pushing a stroller at two in the morning? And as New Yorkers, this was, I think, a gift for you and me <laughs> living in the city because how often do you see people pushing strollers with dogs or pushing strollers with packages without babies in them? And this lady was doing it at <laughs> two in the morning. That was a conversation that you and I have probably had with people in, in, in the streets of Brooklyn at some point over the last X number of years. Sorry. But also when Callie was a baby and I was pushing her in the stroller, people hated the fact that I was pushing a stroller. People would jump over the stroller to get a seat on the subway ahead of us. So oh, gosh. <laughs> we've, we've been on both sides of that conversation. Yeah, I, I not exactly the same thing, but um, I when I was a kid, and I mean, still to this day, I was always a night owl. And my parents, we used to live in the Bronx, and my parents told me that the only way they could get me to go to sleep was to put me, in those days, in the bassinet, in the back of our car, and drive around the Bronx for about an hour every night in order to get me to go to sleep. Because And it's funny, because to this day, if I'm not driving and I'm in, like, in the back seat of a car sitting, I will fall asleep. I think it's just the kind of the motion and whatever. But so... And it would be late at night. It would be 11, 12 o'clock at night. <laughs> Putting me in the bassinet in the car because I wouldn't sleep any other way. And they got tired of my crying. So, you know, it, it, it's a city. I mean, you know, I know the doctor is, you know, giving the, the lady grief about it, but it's still London. And London is not completely, you know, the sidewalks don't roll up there at five o'clock in the afternoon. So it could have been a baby, but it wasn't, you know, because, yeah, a lot of people, you know, put their dogs and cats in strollers and stuff these days. And, Walk them around. Well, uh, New York is the city that never sleeps, of course, so you would yeah. likely find that here too. So, Callie, um, any last thoughts on Millie Gibson, who plays Ruby, the Doctor's new companion? She is a teenage actress who'd previously been on a very long-running British yeah. soap opera. Yeah, I, I mean, I like it. I think it makes sense. I think it's a very like. I mean, I mean, I can't really say that much because I haven't really seen. I've only really seen. From examples of comedians from the specials and from Enlightenment, really. But they seem to have a really good... I mean, they have a really good dynamic. I would say I... I believe we said something about that. Is it the same as the dynamic that the Fifth Doctor has with Tegan in Enlightenment, or is this a happier dynamic? Uh, I would actually say there are some similarities between the two. What are some similarities between Ruby and Tegan? Well... In their dynamic, obviously, the Doctor is going to know more because of all of the experience that he's had. But he doesn't he doesn't exactly treat both in both instances. They don't exactly treat their Tegan or Ruby as if they are inferior. Like there's, it's not as if they are less than the doctor and I find that even sometimes using them for help and relying on them the way that they rely on him and I think it's very different from how the 10th doctor treated Donna as somebody he sort of cast her aside instead of treating treating her like a real person Right, so this is a much more positive relationship, and you look forward to seeing more of it, I hope. I do. 
Well, the new season begins in May. I think it's going to be eight episodes. So, Callie, I will have you watch as many of those with me as you can stomach. I will. All right, Callie, thanks for joining us. You may leave if you wish, or you may hang out. Jan, let me turn over to you. Uh, what did you think of the dynamic between Shooty and Millie? And how did you like Millie herself? Um, I really liked Millie. I wasn't sure what to think, because I know when she was first cast, I was a little leery because she looked a lot like uh, Rose Tyler 2.0. But then, I mean, even the first video that she and Shooty did back, got over a year ago, it was just sort of their, you know, kind of their chemistry on screen test to, to talk to the audience, I realized that they just, they clicked. They definitely had, they sparked off each other. And I liked her a lot more because I liked her personality and I thought the two of them worked very well together. Um, I think because it's a Christmas episode, because it's the first episode that they ever filmed. Um, I know Shooty was actually off doing sex ed at certain points. In the scene where Ruby uh, actually goes to check out the TARDIS, um, when that was, that was shot very early on and it was just, um, Anita Dobson and, uh, Millie Gibson on set because Shooty was not anywhere near there. There was before anybody had like caught sight of him on, on a set because he was busy doing this other show and also doing promo for, uh, Barbie at the time. So I think that probably affected some of her performance too, that she was not always acting with him. And, uh, um, so I think there were, you know, and also she's young and this is her first big non soap role. And I've never seen her on Coronation Street. So I can't say, but people, British friends of mine who have seen her say she was excellent. Um, I think there were little like minor hiccups, nothing terrible. Um, but I look forward to seeing what she does, you know, what now that they've sort of established themselves and now that she and Shooter are going to be there full time together. Um, so I liked her a lot. Um, the only thing I didn't like about the character, and we'll see what happens with it. There was a little bit, there was a touch of Moffity Impossible Girl going on there. Um, and I have a lot of theories about that um, because there was some really weirdly, and, and I just rewatched it again last night. There's some really oddly timey-wimey things going on. They're starting from the beginning where the doctor is watching whoever it is that's leaving her at the church. And he says that nobody knows this, that, or the other thing until the doctor came into her life. So, and Russell has said in interviews that we're going to go back to that church. And even the scene in the club, she's watching him dancing and he's on there. And the next thing we know, he's by her elbow and catching her drink. And as far as I know, the doctor can't teleport, which makes me wonder whether there's some time travel, you know, stuff going on there. There's a lot of little odd things going on in the story that I think we're going to revisit and will possibly look different. In, you know, five, uh, six, seven months from now, I guess, and after June, once we see what's gone on with this upcoming series. Um, but I liked her. And I think that they have, and she's definitely not Rose 2.0. I think she's a very different character. She's got a lot different life. Um, she's got, you know, a mom and a grandmother who love her. I'm very happy that Russell dropped the whole um, malarkey because at one point he was very happy. He, he was like thrilled with, you know, all girls, you know, all daughters fight with their mothers. And there was always this antagonism going on. And that definitely was not there between Carla and Millie or Carla and Ruby. And I really like that. You raise a lot of points that are, are worth exploring. Yeah, I was also afraid that we were going to get Rose 2.0 because you have a 19-year-old, very, very blonde companion we've already seen that and i'm sure rtd didn't come back to the show just to do what he had already done now the three-part dr donna coda 
that was done for production reasons. But with the new Doctor, I kind of wanted a clean slate. And having a Rose 2.0 would not give us that clean slate. Um, I was very taken with Millie Gibson. I think she brings a good energy and positivity to the role. And she's definitely not playing the character that Rose was. I, When I did my rewatch in 2022 of the new series, I was not impressed with Rose as a human being. Even as the series goes on, she's still making fat jokes and she can be very judgmental. Not talking about Billy Piper, obviously, just the character that she is given to read. Right, and the, the character is very selfish. I mean, Russell has talked about that in interviews, too. He wrote her that way, but she's not always a likable person because she's very, you know, you see it even when she came back and did a stolen earth and journey's edge. She's willing to destroy dimensions and, you know, and because she needs to be with the doctor, which is like the ultimate in selfishness to me. <laughs> like, who cares about the universe? I just want my man. I burned up a star to say goodbye. Yeah, we're not getting any of that. Um, oh, definitely uh, not. Ruby seems to be scripted in, in a much more positive way. Um, and then um, talking some more about the relationship between the Doctor and Ruby, this is not going to be a love affair. This is not going to be no something that requires the stern undrang of Doomsday, where they're separated through a wall in different dimensions, and the Doctor, of course, has to... <laughs> burn up a star to say goodbye, and then she crosses time and space to come back. This is just a friendship between two hot young people. What I'm a little concerned about, and you touched on this as well, is that I don't want the companion to be a mystery that has to be solved. Amy Pond was a mystery that had to be solved. Clara Oswald was a mystery that had to be solved. In the classic series, the companion was the companion. They needed a role. The companion shows up. Sometimes they're an orphan. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they have to be rescued. Sometimes they don't. And they join up with the doctor for as long as their contract is tolerated by the production team. But the classic series companions were not really mysteries that had to be solved for the most part. Right. Uh, you I, know, the, the doctor is not going back in time to find out where this dodo person comes from or um, – uh, right, but to, to to counter that, unfortunately, the the classic companions, with you know a few exceptions, a lot of them were just like ciphers, and we didn't know anything about their lives, anything about their families, anything really about their backgrounds, other than you know whatever the 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 laundry list that we were told on screen, and. So I think, you know, unfortunately, television is a different medium and stories are told differently. But I agree with the whole we don't necessarily need a mystery and we don't need to have them, you know, something, you know, weird and, you know, science fiction or weird and, you know, fantastical about the character in order to have them have a life and have a have a family and have a personality. Like the low point of the classic series I love Bonnie Langford, but the low point is that she was scripted as being a computer genius, and they never right. let her use that once in any of her one and a half years on camera. And RTD, to his credit, immediately fixed that in The Giggle by showing her use her computer skills to help save a plot point and also hinting at a backstory to her character that she didn't get because of the way she was introduced in Terror of the Vervoids. Uh, but – I think I am more – because I come from the classic series first, I like Doctor Who being a story about what the Doctor and his companions do. I don't necessarily want to see stories about this is who the Doctor is and this is who the companion is. I want to see what they do more than explore who they are. I am a little hesitant to commit to an eight-episode series where every episode is about uncovering some mystery of Ruby's life. And then in the grand season finale, there's a lot of schmaltz as she goes, oh – 
the real adoptees were the friends we made along the way. I'm a little hesitant to see that as a cliche plot point. I'd rather just the doctor and Ruby go off and have a lot of fun together. So well, time I will tell said, what we're going to get, but I'd rather see the classic series style than the new series style. Right. What I was going to say uh, to counter that, though, is that Russell has said again that um, I guess they know they've got at least a four-season contract with Disney and with the BBC. So he said that he can do longer story arcs. He doesn't have to compress everything into what used to be a 12-episode series or 13, if you want to include a Christmas episode. Um, and now he's, you know, now a nine one, basically. Or in, in this case, actually 10, because you've got the first Christmas special, then eight episodes, and then there's going to be a holiday Christmas special um, for 2024. Um, and as far as we know, minor spoiler, Ruby is sticking around for season two, at least, because she they're shooting season two right now, and she's definitely there. And I won't discuss anything that's happened with her, but, but Millie is definitely on set. And Millie is definitely involved in the stories so far. So I think that a longer it might work better if it's stretched out over a longer period of time. But as long as it's not like constantly we have to stop in the middle of the story and contemplate, you know, well, what is this weirdness about Ruby? What is this that or the other thing happening? Because, yeah, sometimes you just want an adventure and you just want the doctor and the companion to go off and do things and blow up stuff and, you know, fight aliens or robot monsters or apparently now goblins and other, you know, magical things um and not necessarily like contemplate their navels etc i mean one of the things that i'm not thrilled about i mean i don't want to get into the whole chibnall thing but and i don't dislike chibnall as much as some other people do but the timeless child thing will forever stick in my craw and unfortunately you know this is a big thing with me now that we dealt with it a bit because i was like you were talking about how we'd gotten rid of the angst um, and we still, you know, we don't have the time war angst, but then we suddenly had tenant angsting over, you know, being, you know, the timeless child and being a foundling and this and that. And then here we are again. I mean, granted, part of it was the coincidence, which was part of the story, but there's the doctor getting all tearful about being a foundling and being adopted, et cetera. But, um, you know, and, and trying to like say, well, we're, we're, we've got things in common, except for the fact that, you know, Carla's this lovely woman who actually likes, you know, being a, a foster parent and, and taking care of small children who are bad shape and adopted Ruby and clearly loves her. The doctor was basically, you know, we don't know whether he was, he, they, she were found or whether they were stolen because, you know, we don't know exactly what happened there. Um, and then Tecton took this child and basically, you know, tortured them, abused them, um, used them as a lab rat, murdered them repeatedly, and was not a parent in any way, shape, or form. And we don't even know how much the doctor really remembers about that because they, you know, Jody Whitaker dropped the, uh, the, the watch fob down the, the tube and the TARDIS. So well, along with all their memories. Um, and there's the doctor being all, you know, teary eyed about this stuff, blah, blah, blah. And, and that actually, that annoyed me a little bit. I, I get that Russell is trying to like fix the Chibnall thing because obviously he likes it. And, you know, the Chibnall detractors were sure that RTD was going to erase everything and make it all go away because they didn't like it. I mean, I, I give him credit for trying to make something of it and supporting his friend, but I still don't like the basic idea of it because to me, I want the doctor, you know, Again, classic series. I want the doctor to be 
somebody who was just, you know, an every man, every person of their own society who decided to step up, didn't like what was going on, became, you know, not quite a revolutionary, but at least left what was going on and wanted to help people because they wanted to help people because they were a good person, not because they were a chosen one, not because they were some super special, even better than the time lords who were, you know, Debbie gods to begin with, but now they're even higher than that. And I don't, a lot of people are like, oh, well, it brought the mystery back to Doctor Who. I don't need the mystery. I'm okay with what we know about the doctor and I find this a distraction and I don't want to really hear about it. And like I said, on top of that, to me, it really bothers me that we've got this hero now that suddenly was like, you know, basically an abused child, Um, you know, was tortured and abused and emotionally, you know, wrecked, et cetera. Well, Janet, thanks very much for joining us. I'll point out that as Callie and I are sitting here, our upstairs neighbor is blasting the Wellerman on Alexa, which now puts me in mind to watch Legend of the Sea Devils again. That's a new sentence that nobody's ever before said in history. But <laughs> I am still very excited for the new series, and I want to see oh, a clean slate continuity-wise, and hopefully we'll get that starting in May. Jan, Callie, thank you again so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Bye. <laughs>